Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Dr. Colby Peters. Now, I stumbled on her work a little while ago, and I just fell in love with it immediately. It's using emotion wheels and human needs wheels. And it wasn't a completely new concept for me, but the way that she framed it and set it up was like, this feels so much more approachable. And so I reached out to her and I said, hey, I have a podcast. Would you be willing to come on to it? And she graciously said yes. So Dr. Peters, welcome to the show today. And can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Thank you for having me. And Sure. Like you said, I'm Dr. Colby Peters, and I have a small business, Human Systems, and I do a few different things. I do consulting with organizations. My background is in social work, so I'm interested primarily in human service organizations, and I help them with what you might think of as soft skills, uh, conflict management, relationship building, things like that. And the emotion wheels, they came out of, well, there's a whole story behind them, which I'm happy to tell you, but the emotion wheels were sort of like a side project that I did to make one of my workshops more effective. And they have turned out to be the major draw for my business, the the portal through which everybody comes upon human <laughs> systems. So they're they're like kind of magical for me and they they seem to be magical for other people as well which is wonderful i love the word magical because i think that actually really describes it is the emotion wheel is not a new concept per se right but it's the way that you write about it and you frame it and uh, colorize it colorize is that the right word you put colors to it sure so (laughs) Okay, so I'm I'm dying to know what's the backstory. How did you come to use these as an intervention with with your consulting work? So, I I would have to start with my personal story, I think, because up until 10 years ago, I tried to live my life like I didn't have emotions. And I am also a very sensitive person. I'm just wired that way. And so you might imagine that if I am sensitive and I try to live my life like I don't have emotions, it was not effective. (laughs) Uh, What ended up happening is a lot of depression and uh, frustration. And I think, you know, there are a lot of reasons that I try to live my life that way. One of them is Western ideas about emotion and the role of emotion in adult life, uh, there tends to be these ideas that people who are emotional are childlike or or allowing the animal side 
of themselves to come out more than it should. And we are realizing now with the research and normalization of things that used to be stigmatized like mental health issues and um, anxiety and, you know, stuff that everybody really deals with. Emotions are a really important piece of the puzzle to working through those kinds of mental health issues. And, emo and emotions also have really important information in them that can help raise our awareness about ourselves and what's happening outside of ourselves so we can make better choices. So I, I was living my life like I had no emotions and it wasn't going well. And then I was getting my PhD. I was in a social justice class and I read an article by the philosopher and feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, which I'm happy to give you a link to if you yeah. want. Um, yeah, great. But it, it's about, she talks about uh, how the emotions traditionally are thought of as the purview of women and also associated with weakness, mm -hmm. character weakness. And her her argument was that they everybody has emotions and that having strong emotions is a sign of mental fortitude and strength and it was the first time i had read anything about emotions where there wasn't some kind of subtle underlying message like but try not to have them <laughs> so <laughs> yeah <laughs> It really, I finally felt like I had the permission to start exploring my own emotions and accepting them because they were an important part of who I was. So that was probably the first step. And then when I got into working on my dissertation, my, my dissertation was looking at leadership in social work and human service organizations, and particularly how do we lead in an organization so that we don't get these crazy high burnout rates um, and turnover rates? Because it's a major problem in human services and social work organizations. So what, are, what could we do better to help people feel better about working there mm -hmm. and, not, and not get burnout and come away with like, lots of mental health issues? Um, and what I noticed was a lot of suppressed emotion. So another Western idea is that when you walk into your office or your Zoom meeting or wherever you're going, you check your emotion at the door, especially if it's uncomfortable emotion because it's not quote unquote professional. What I was noticing is that people had all this repressed emotion that they felt like they couldn't express. <laughs> you laughing? I'm, I'm, what are you laughing I, about? I am just rolling through my everyday <laughs> life and leadership challenges and like, Oh God, she's nailing the hammer. Like, get the forget the hammer and nail. You got a nail gun. She's just pop, 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 and getting it in the best kind of way. Like, thank you, like for validating and giving permission to like just this whole frame of like the professional Western ideal is to check your emotions at the door and like in human service organizations of which I'm connected to with the Financial Therapy Association. The irony is I see that happening even within an organization that advocates for emotional well-being. So, mm -hmm. right, this is how subtle 
it can be, and yet like blaringly obvious once you see it. Yes. Subtle and glaringly obvious once you see it. Because so many of these interactions where we feel like our emotions are being repressed or we're getting our hands smacked for having uncomfortable, expressing uncomfortable emotions, the response is so subtle, it's hard to even be aware that it's happening. But once you notice it, it's like you can't unsee it. <laughs> and, and, and so... So my personal experience combined with my experience writing my dissertation and doing interviews with people and organizations is that what have we found a way to teach people and organizations how to express emotion in a way that other people can hear it so that it doesn't feel uh, threatening or blaming or judging because a big part of the problem is that if my partner says to me, I'm really angry with you, that's scary. Yeah. That can be really scary unless yeah. I have a really good sense of self-worth and I'm really grounded in myself and I know not to take that personally. Yeah. And I'm sorry, my brain's naturally jumping to another one of those things is, especially with my work with money, partners will express overtly or covertly their jealousy which like that one's oh, like yeah i'm jealous that you have this or getting to do this or not do that right and, and so like jealousy and anger are i think and this is one of the things that i loved about your wheel so i'm jumping ahead a little bit so we can come back on your story but you oh, that's fine you labeled the emotions as comfortable and uncomfortable Mm -hmm. And your your emotional will. And that was the first time I had ever seen emotions framed that way. I think and a lot of times we have good emotions, air quotes, and bad emotions, air quotes. And I've like as I've been on my own journey, I've realized like that's not a great framing. But I right. haven't really like found the language. So the language of comfortable versus uncomfortable emotions has been really helpful for me. So you're on this journey, you're writing your dissertation, you're discovering this whole world of emotions and to some extent, are you still kind of shut down on the fact that you have your own emotional world? I'm getting there. Okay. I, Ed, I, I cried after I, met, I read this article by Mary Wollstonecraft. I cried in, in a therapy session. It's not like I wasn't going to therapy. I totally was. <laughs> but I, had, I cried for the first time in probably 10 years. Up until that point, I hadn't even been able to cry. And so, so once the waterworks started coming, I would cry at the drop of a hat. Like I would see something cute and I'd be like, oh my God, this is so adorable because I had so much repressed, intense feeling that hadn't been able to come out. I was crying at everything. So is that kind of one of the more common patterns when people finally unlock the box of their emotions is like kind of they're overwhelmed with sadness and it just shows up all the like I don't know I'm glad you asked me that question because I want to say right up front that I am not I do not consider myself an expert on people's experience of emotion and and I can explain a little more about that and I say that because my research and the way I built the wheels are more about how people 
tend to process emotion. And I have not done a lot of research on, say, what happens when people are able to get in touch with with long-term stored up emotion. I know I from the research I know that it can manifest as um, pain in the body. Mm-hmm. It can, you know, it can come up in all different kinds of ways, but I do know that it doesn't go away. So it has to come out somehow some way and people do that in different ways, I think. Are you familiar with uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk and the body keeps the score? Yes. So when I think about recent really good thorough research on on storing emotions in the body, I think about him and I also think about really interesting research coming up about the uh, fascia and the role of fascia in our bodies and how they store emotional information. I don't know. Are you familiar with the fascia? So literally that was coming up in a client meeting today and I am loosely, loosely, this person's very body centered. So they, they have language about their body that I only like, they know at a deeper level than I know, which I just track and go with it. Right. But so for those that are listening, can you give uh, some sense of definition? What is fascia? What is that? Okay, I'm gonna do, I will do my best. I encourage everybody to Google this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I yeah, have right. a layman's knowledge of fascia, but it's amazing. It's like if you have, you know, if you ever work with like raw chicken breast, like if you're cooking, yeah. it's the stuff that you peel away that is like white and covers the chicken breast. Okay. It's like a very thin coating. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Ed? Oh yeah. 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 I know what you're talking about. Like the. Okay. So, okay. That's fascia. It's this network of collagen. I believe it's collagen that for a long time, surgeons used to think was throwaway material. They would like pull it up and be like, ah, we don't need that. But <laughs> what it turns out that it is basically what holds our body together end up in gravity through a process called tensegrity. So everything in our body is coated in fascia, this thin layer of connective tissue, and it provides the structural integrity for our body. And it also allows like our muscles and organs to slide past each other easily. It's like a lubricant. Okay. Um, it stores information. It's a commun- It's communication. It's amazing. It's and um, there's also there's some really fantastic videos online if you just put in fascia of like showing what it does like up close microscopically and it's unbelievable. It's mind blowing. I'm like doing everything I can do to hold myself on the interview because there's that little like boy that wants to just go up <laughs> and like. Google and start looking at that. I'm like, no, be here, be present. Like, this is what you're doing now. You can look at that later. Like, just hold yourself. We right? can talk about fascia forever <laughs> later if you want to. Or now, I'm flexible. <laughs> you're using your fascia. No wrong use of the term fascia. But um, no, wow. Yeah. So this sidebar, right? Like anybody that listens to this podcast knows that we go on sidebars and down little rabbit holes, and then we try to come back to the storyline. So. 
as we're going down the storyline, you're finishing the dissertation, you're learning to, you're coming in contact with emotion. I'm going to say learning to cry, but I don't, whatever. Sure, we could say that. <laughs> learning, feeling, experiencing. And what unfolds after that? So I am teaching this workshop on a concept that I call emotional competence, which I developed as part of my dissertation. And it's leadership plus emotional intelligence. So I th- most people are familiar with the term emotional intelligence, but just to make sure that we're on the same page, emotional intelligence is being able to identify emotions in yourself and others, being able to manage your emotions and being able to have effective emotional responses to other people's emotions. Okay. Yeah. So that's emotional intelligence. I combined it with leadership and leadership by my definition is, is any action for the purpose of change. So so we lead in our lives all the time. Every time we do something that is different from what we normally do, where we're trying to change something, we're leading. So define leadership one more time, because I love that. I'm just trying to hold on to that. Yep. Sure. So leadership is any action for change. And the reason I defined it that way is because when I was doing my dissertation, I looked at articles on leadership all the way back to like the late 1800s because I'm like that. (laughs) And I just wanted to see where did the term come from? Like who first started talking about quote unquote leadership? And the best guess I could make according to what I saw was that it comes from the word lead, L-E-A-D, because the the lead that they would use at the the lead line yeah. that they would use at the top of a newspaper to separate the title of the of the newspaper article from the text. Yeah. So it's the lead. Lead, right? Yeah, so that's... it comes before. Okay. Yeah. I think. But if any one of your listeners is like, that's not right, I want to know the true story. (laughs) We want to know the true story of leadership. That's the best true story we've got for now. That's the best I know. But so all the leadership definitions I looked at from the late 1800s all the way up through 2016, when I did my dissertation, had one thing in common. It was just making a change. That's all it was. You're just trying to make a change. Wow. So I thought if I could make the definition really simple, it opens leadership up to anybody in an organization. Anybody can make a change. And that's what I see as a big problem in, in organizations, not just human service organizations, but where people have different, different levels of power. I know we're going down a rabbit hole. I feel that we're going down yeah, a yeah. rabbit hole. No, but there, I'll bring it back around because <laughs> all right, here's all right. where it's going to come back around, right, is there's a concept. I think currently uh, Internal Family Systems talks a lot about self-leadership. Um, but I think... Ah, yes. Thank right? you. Okay. And yes. then when we think about our own life and in the context of this is money and leadership, are often synonymous in various different ways, right? We seek leadership for money yes. and status and power. Like there's all kinds of different angles. So if we can get to a clear, healthy working definition of leadership that can apply across multiple contexts, I love it, which is what 
it sounds like you're opening the door to say like leadership is not just for the person that's the boss at the company. Leadership right. is for all of us in many areas. And as the de- you say in the definition, any action for change. Right. Is an expression right. of leadership. Yes. And it's building towards emotional competence, which I'm liking that word combination. Yes. So, all right. Thank you. All right. So I was teaching these workshops on emotional competence and I was trying to find a tool. What I noticed is that people had a really hard time saying what they were feeling, like what their emotion was. Mm -hmm. So they're really good at telling a story or saying what they don't like about what the other person is doing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But, But they had a really hard time saying, I feel you know, angry, or I feel betrayed, or I feel frustrated came up a lot, overwhelmed, came anxious. They have like these few go-to emotion words that were common and felt acceptable to them, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. But when I when I would say, but they had trouble saying being more specific. So I started doing research on emotions and emotion tools. And that's when I found the emotion wheel which I definitely did not invent. It has been around for years and years. And when I started doing research and emotion, uh, I came across Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett's work. Are you familiar with her at all? The name sounds vaguely familiar, but no. Uh, we'll, we'll just assume no. And okay. I can assure you. Okay. Yeah, the listeners probably, maybe a handful. So let's assume we don't know. Okay. Okay, so... In my opinion, I think that she is the the best, most comprehensive researcher on emotion in the psychological neuroscience field. Okay. So what she has done is she has done an amazing review of all the literature on emotion and come up with a really amazing and what I think is very intuitive theory of how we make emotion and what emotion is. Because... The debate about what emotion is has been raging for years, ever since Aristotle wrote about it, all the <laughs> way to today, right. and in all kinds of different uh, uh, areas, psychology, anthropology, philosophy, I, everybody has an opinion. Religion. Um, and they don't always agree. Religion, absolutely. Yeah, basically so, everyone has some attitude or view of the role of emotion in life. Exactly. Yes. Everybody has a perspective. Yes. So I think she's done a particularly good job of of looking at all of the information and really grounding it in the physical science, neuroscience, right. and bringing in that philosophy piece for a really, what I think is a really effective theory of how we make emotion and how we could use emotion in our lives. So lay it on us. I'm on a cliff's edge. I want to know. <laughs> okay. So her theory, this is it in a nutshell. Sure. Okay. So her theory is that, which is not actually that far off from, from other philosophers and actually what Aristotle said, it's just, she is the right person in the right time today to say, sure. it, right? She modernizes so her, her theory. Exactly. Yes. So her theory, so we have... Well, first of all, we often use the terms feelings and emotion interchangeably. And when we're talking about scientific research, 
they're not interchangeable. Feeling is the physical sensation that we have in our body. Uh-huh. Um, emotion is something else. Uh, but let's let's talk about feelings first. So so let's say there's some event. We experience an event and we have emotions about it. What happens is we have sensations in our body. Yeah. We have thoughts about it. And those also interact and combine with our perspective and previous experiences. Right. All of those things, our thoughts, our feelings, past experiences create what I think of as a stew. <laughs> so like there's lots of flavors. It's very complex, lots of ingredients. Yeah. And then we can use an emotion word to label the stew. So, oh. so that's how we make an emotion. Then what is an emotion? So an emotion has two parts. It is the meaning making. So it, it makes meaning of an event and it is the motivation to act. So inside of an emotion is meaning and motivation, desire to act. I'm loving it. I'm trying to digest it. That the stew is so rich and so tasty right now. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> so in this emotion is part meaning and part action. I'm using action potential. That's not the word that you used. Yeah, that's fine. But totally. there's and so anger or sadness or fear or shame all each of those words that we use are describing this complex underlying stew. Is that correct? Am I connecting this correctly? Yes, you got it. Okay. You got it. Exactly. Wow. What's the, what am I trying to get at? I'm a big, I love complexity. I've grown more and more in love with complexity. And I know that there's this kind of balance between the beauty of complexity and the beauty of simplicity. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like when we oversimplify, we can lose the beauty of the underlying complexity. But when we get mired in the complexity, we can lose the simplicity of what it is that's happening. And so there's this kind of interesting both and relationship. And that's where your analogy of like the stew makes it this really complex. Like you said neuroscience, psychology of emotion. Oh, my God, my brain's frying. Oh, but it's like a stew. OK, I can relate to that. <laughs> OK, good. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So. What's interesting to me about the emotion wheels that you make available on your website that people can check out, and we'll have a link to this, is you do the emotion wheels in kind of three phases, wheel one, wheel two, and wheel three. And at least my quick mm -hmm. interpretation is they go from simpler descriptions to more rich, nuanced vocabulary, if you will. So can you walk us through yes. why three emotion wheels and what's happening at these different stages? And then kind of to layer in a piece of this cake, if we use another food analogy, what happens for people as they expand their emotional vocabulary? I love that question about expanding your emotional vocabulary. So I'll, I will start with why I have three kinds of emotion wheels. I actually made emotion wheel three first, which has two sides, uncomfortable and comfortable, and has about 200 different emotion words. And I made that one because, because the research shows that the more emotional vocabulary we have, the more specific we can get with our emotion word to label our stew, the more effective and efficient we get at processing our emotions. 
understanding what they mean to us and knowing the right thing to do, if anything. My brain just went on a little sidebar as you were describing that. But I th- as we're mm-hmm. thinking about developing language to name the different stews we experienced, 200 words, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Some part of that, as humans, we, we kind of mislabel things, the wrong emotional stew. Like between parents and child, mm-hmm. oh, you're so angry when the child is scared or you're so, right. um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I have 200 words and I'm coming up with two right now, but that's a different story. <laughs> so, okay. So kind of back on this journey. So you actually start with three, with the emotion wheel three, which gives us 200 words for vocabulary. And then what happened? And then the reason, the reason I did that is because two reasons. One is because I just didn't, I, I wanted more choices because the emotion wheels I saw, I just, I like choices. I like to have all the choices. I want all the things. I want all the choices. And I, the ones that I saw just weren't doing it for me. And I wanted to see if I could create an emotion wheel that was more in line with current thinking about how emotion is made, which is that there is a lot of culture that goes into how we make emotions which if you think about it makes sense because if our past experiences go into the stew, the emotion stew, then of course culture would come into it. And you can validate this by doing a Google search of say Japanese emotion words. They have some really amazing emotion words that we just don't have the equivalent of in English. There's an argument that you can't fully experience an emotion or understand it unless you have the right word for it. Ooh. Mhm. So, I wow. I didn't start from a top so most emotion wheels and theories of emotion are top-down approach. Yeah. They they start with they say, you know, human beings have five basic emotions. Human beings have seven basic emotions. And right. that's based on what parts of our brain tend to light up when we report feeling a certain way. Sure. But I thought what what if you build an emotion wheel where you build it from the bottom up. So I collected as many emotion words in English as I could find. And then I started sorting them into what I think of like emergent categories. So I would say, oh, well, betrayed and frustrated. I feel like those go in a similar category. Those have the same feel to me. And I just kept doing that until I came up with like five or six, there's five comfortable emotion categories in the center of the wheel and I think six in the in the uncomfortable emotion wheel and that was the result of these emergent categories until I came up with categories where I could pull out a word from each one that I thought described the entire category okay so we're going from kind of expansive into yeah and I just pulled it up yeah so just so listeners can know and there'll there'll be a link Right in the center of your circle, you have loving, accepted, confident, interested, and excited. And then there's mm-hmm. concentric circles. There's a middle ring, and we'll just do accepted has invited, attractive, loved, beloved, honored, so on and so forth. And then we go out to the outer mm-hmm. ring, and it says wanted, needed, interesting, beautiful, favored. And that's one slice of the pie, so to speak. 
man, I'm going to have to go eat a big meal after this one. We've got all these food <laughs> analogies. Um, but this is, yeah, wow. Oh, I, I mean, I could sit and pick your brain and ask you questions about this for hours on end. So, all right. So we got this these emotion wheels, comfortable, uncomfortable emotions, helping people start to articulate them. Where do we need to take this conversation from here? I, and I don't want to miss, let me just say, I'm, you have not just emotion wills, but you have human needs wills. And this is what really blew my mind is I hadn't oh, seen awesome. a human needs will. So can you talk about fundamental human needs and compare and contrast to human emotions? And this is all part of your brilliant company name, Human Systems. So I love, I just love all of it. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. So I do think I have the only needs wheel so far that I know of, um, but who knows? I feel like there's nothing original out there. <laughs> it's just, you just change things around. Right. So the needs wheel came, I started, I did the needs wheel because I have this tool called turning emotion into action. And it's, it's a way to process your emotions and your needs fully so that you can then do a perspective adjustment so that you can figure out the next right thing to do mm. because your perspective is the our perspective is the shell that we live in like if we're snails yeah our pers or hermit crabs let's say if we're hermit crabs our shell is like our perspective periodically we're going to get too big for our perspective and we need to get out of our perspective, check it out, be like, is this going to work for me? I don't know. Yes, no, no. And then we have to find our new shell, our new perspective. So I'm going down a tangent. I'm sorry. Uh, no, but, I love it. I love so, it. When I'm thinking about like the snake that sheds the skin as it grows, right? As a kind of another yes, rough like analogy, that. right? Like, yes. so whether we're talking about a crustacean that needs a larger shell as it grows or a snake that as it grows, it sheds its skin. Biologists, forgive me for oversimplifying. Um, but as humans, <laughs> I think what you're saying is like, we live within the container of our perspective, but then something, something yeah. happens in our life. And it's like, whoa, we actually need a bigger perspective here. And we've got to grow into That's right. it. Okay. Yes, and yes, exactly. So I believe that our emotions are the indicators that uncomfortable emotions are yeah. indicators that are just cues for us to take a look at our perspective and we may want to adjust it. We can always climb back in, but we should probably take a look. Even when the shell feels shattered, we can, we can still cobble enough back together and crawl back into our perspective if we need to. People yeah. do it all the time, Ed. I'm hiding behind my little piece. Yes. Oh, let's <laughs> just say like, I do it. Like I do that sometimes. Where, I do it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Even there is a gaping hole in my yeah. shell. Yeah, I right. will hang out there yeah. until I am forced. <laughs> I'm twisting my body around. So I you know, hopefully the hole doesn't expose me. Does this bikini cover everything up? No, the bikini doesn't cover everything up. Sorry. <laughs> right. Yes. So, okay. So he's doing this, this exercise, which is based in, uh, on cognitive therapy techniques and 
I'd say motivational interviewing were probably the two main therapy modalities that went into the creation of this tool. And what I noticed is that people did great identifying their emotions. They did not, they struggled when they would identify their needs. What they would do is I'd say, okay, so you feel betrayed and this and this. So what do you need? And they would say, I need her to stop such and such. I need him to be on time. I need (laughs) them to do their work. And I would find myself explaining that's a want. (laughs) You can't control other people. So what they would do is they're giving away their power to someone else. And I thought, well, what can I do to help people see, like, what is a need? And I thought, what about a needs wheel? Um, So I just did the same thing I did with the emotion wheel. I collected human needs off the Internet. I just Googled human needs. And (laughs) I collected everything that I could find until I started hitting what you call saturation in qualitative research, which is when you yeah. come up with the same kind of get the similar things over and over. Right. I did leave, leave out physiological needs. So there's not going to be, there's nothing in there about hungry, tired, touch, right. things like that. Okay. Um, and we can get into why that is later, but what I found. Wait, wait, hold that on. Was that I a was, part what, two Colby that you're, were you offering a part two? <laughs> Because I'm thinking there might be a part two for this interview. Ed, I will talk about my work all day long. <laughs> I will do as many interviews as you want. I Are you kidding? I would love to talk about this. All right. So let's, listeners, let's actually do that. Let's hit pause here. Let's call this part one. Okay. We've... We've right. covered a little bit of your journey. We've opened up the emotion wheels. We're transitioning to the needs wheels. And listeners, you're going to have to come back to really connect with <laughs> your human needs and what's going on here. And then, right, you're illuminating, like, well, we didn't even touch into the physiology. And this is this is something I really appreciate about um, wonderful academics and clinicians. You think about things so richly and so dynamically, and the generosity is so greatly appreciated. And your, your energy and excitement for the work is just contagious. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. So, Colby, we've been busy talking about your emotion wheels and how you develop them and all the things that are going on there. But I don't want to miss the opportunity that you've also created human needs wheels. And I have one up on my computer. I'm looking at it now. They're available at your website. Very easy to find human systems. So there'll be a link in the show notes. But can you tell us a little bit about more about the story of the human needs wheel development, what that represents and um, why it's so important for people to connect with their the range of different human needs that they may have. Sure. Yes. Thank you so much for asking me about those. So 
I had done the emotion wheels and I have this exercise that I developed called turning emotion into action. And there's four steps. The first step is people identify their emotions. The second step is people identify the need associated with the emotion. So I believe that behind every comfortable emotion is a met need and behind every uncomfortable emotion is an unmet need. Let me, my brain just be blown and come back together just on that one concept. (laughs) That really is linking a lot. I mean, it just makes so much sense to me as you say that. Oh, I'm so glad. (laughs) This relationship between our needs and emotions and that it's a, for comfortable emotions, it's about needs being met. And when... Yes. Um, we experience the uncomfortable emotions. I'll just name one shame. Some human need uh-huh. has not been met. That's what I believe based on, based on the research and my personal experience. Which right. Always are interrelated. Personal experience leads us on the research, the research then informs and helps us better understand the personal experience. That's how it's been for me. Uh, I would say for me as well. And so let's name these, like I'm looking at your human systems needs wheel one and I see in the center. So is this also like the emotion wheel, like where you had like the outer ring worked into the middle ring, worked into the inner ring because needs wheel one has like an outer ring and an inner ring. Yeah. So it came together in a similar way. I developed the needs wheel the same way that I did the emotion wheel. I collected as many needs as I could find, except not physiological needs. And we can talk more about why that is, Um, but I left those out. Um, And as I was collecting, they naturally fell into the four categories that you see. Which are? Which are, so there's like two pairs, four total categories, and one pair is safety and growth. Yeah. And the other pair is individuality and relationship. And I, I believe that we are always trying to balance safety and growth. So human beings, they grow. That's just what they do. Right. Like a plant. Yeah. <laughs> it's in our DNA. We grow. Right, right, right. <laughs> but we can't grow unless we have our safety need, needs met, like our basic needs met. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's what I think. And then um, and then there's individuality and relationship. And we are constantly ha- having to balance between our need to feel unique and special and, you know, like an individual <laughs> um, with our need to be in relationship and feel connected yeah. and and in a group and part of something. Yeah. So this is where I think the difficult part of human existence is because living in this material world, the way it is, we have to make really tough choices. Sometimes we can't have all of our individuality needs met and all of our relationship needs met all the time simultaneously. No. Right. Yes. (laughs) Same with growth and safety. So, I happen to be a very sensitive person. It takes me, I'm a deep processor. Once I, if I spend all day researching and 
learning new things or going to museums or whatever, having a lot of new experiences, growth experiences, yeah. I have to rest. Or, or even said, like, return to a sense of safety. Like, I'm thinking about, you know, just yeah. me that rhythm. Uh, even in today, like, in just in the flow of my day today has been growth, challenging experiences, and then I'm in my bonus room today, so you maybe be able to see over my right shoulder, but there's an overstuffed large teddy bear that I had uh, bought. Yes, I do see that, yes. Right, I bought that for my three boys, or my oldest son, years ago, and it's, he's hung around, and we call him Biggie, affectionately. And <laughs> since I've moved into my bonus room, home office, like I find that I just sit there and lean into him, and like it's- Oh my God, that's so cute. <laughs> And it's almost like I regressed into my five-year-old little boy. And it's just like, I just feel so safe I'm pulling back. Oh, my God. I love it. I want one. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, you know, I, I mean, we. I don't, I will not bore you. Well, maybe you wouldn't be bored, but we won't diatribe off how far into the psychology of Ed's history, Big Bear's. Anyhow, back on task. So, so we have this needs will. We have individuality and relationship. And they're kind of intention holding each other and both valuable and then we have growth and safety and they're yes. kind of seem like i guess in my mind they always seems like one comes at the cost of the other but that's not really what we're saying is they're both important and there are but yes. there are trade-offs sometimes we have to yeah exactly there are trade-offs so if you think about my the imagery i use is if you have, say, a child who's just beginning to walk or who's just learned to walk, you will see them, you know, they'll they'll walk away from the parent right. and explore, and then they'll turn around and check and maybe run back and like wrap their arms around the parent. Yeah. And then they feel they get their dose of safety and like this is my home base, and then they can go out and explore again. Right. So that's kind of how I think of the safety growth balance. Yeah. We can't have one or the other all the time. And that can be, we, can, we can't have fully both at the same time. And it can be really uncomfortable. Well, and this is for me, at least my understanding of the attachment literature, right? A secure attachment allows for both safety and growth. A secure yes. attachment allows for individuality and relationship. You can go be your own person yes. and go out into the world and explore and you can come home into safety and relationship and connection and community. And it's, it is this yeah. developmentally back and forth, being able to practice going out, expressing your own individuality, discovering, trying new things kind of, so I'm playing the individuality growth kind of half of the chart almost. Cause it's, you know, those two are on one half of the chart, at least as I look at it uh -huh. um, and then safety and relationship. And, you know, parents can sometimes over function and create too much safety for their kids. Yes, totally. Yes. And, yeah. and expect too much relationship, not allowing them to go out. Yep. <laughs> yep. I, I... <laughs> yes. Something's coming up for you. Just... Oh, yeah. I'm just thinking about my own son. And we were recently going through a big transition where I realized I was just doing too much for him. He's nine. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I was doing too much for him, as, especially if, around making food. And 
we are just sort of went through this transition where I was saying, okay, now it's time for you to learn how to say, make your own bagel and cream cheese. And you can make a grilled cheese sandwich if I keep an eye on you. And he was very, very resistant. And so we had to work through his safety needs were not being met because he felt like he was being pushed out onto like to walk the plank or something and he was not being sufficiently supported. So I had to help him see like, there are other ways that I show that I love you and care about you. It's not just making food. Yes. You know? And so he has something else to hang on to, but food is really tangible. You can see it, you eat it. Like it's multi-sensory. And so it's, you know, for him, part of growing up is learning, like, I think, because I'm not him, but I'm guessing, oh, mom shows her love in other ways. When we have conversations, when she laughs at my jokes, when she shows up on time to pick me up after school, you know, things like that, less tangible things. Yeah. And I wonder also, though, right, like mom shows love by teaching me how to ultimately make my own bagel so that I can grow into my individuality, right? Like, yes, like good point. Us teaching <laughs> our kids to take care of themselves is an expression of love, at least as I kind of see it. Right. I, I see it that way, too. And it's painful because we're coming to the end of a chapter in our relationship. Oh, yeah. And starting a new chapter, and that's sad for both of us. So we're like trying to honor that sadness and the closing. You know, it's a transition. It's hard. I I often refer to as the growth and grief cycle, right? Like with each stage of that's a great way to think about it. Yes. Like yes. There's stuff that's exciting about growth, but there's also stuff that's sad. There's a loss, right? With growth, there is both gaining and losing. And so it's just this grief and growth cycle that I think I coined, but I probably, I could have read it in a book somewhere and forgotten to attribute it to somebody. So let's say that you did because I haven't heard of it. Okay. Fair enough. And I know that you've read white, (laughs) so we'll just call it good enough. And if I pull an idea, you can just send me an email and let me know, like, here's where you need to give credit, Ed. Okay, no problem. So. <laughs> for now, it's yours. For now, I will claim it. And if I need to give it back to its rightful owner, I will do so. Okay, that's fair. Okay, I'm going to take an unnecessarily stab. This is political. I'm not a colonizer. Well, I am probably, but like, I'm not going to take land that's not mine. I can't wait to see where this is going. This is going to get slippery. Let's come back to the needs, Will. We have humans. We are needs. This is the Healthy Love and Money podcast. And so I think the beauty of this human needs, Will, and I'm curious to, to, we were talking before we started recording this, you hadn't formally thought about like how therapy and financial planning could come together. Right? And I said, well, that's great because that's my job is to help people think about how therapy and financial planning come together. And your human needs will, mm-hmm. I think, is such a huge part of financial planning. Mm-hmm. Right? Because as we're trying to develop our financial life, we are balancing our own individuality and our relational needs and commitments. Right, And when I read so much personal finance stuff, it's about the individuality side, but it misses the relational side. Mm. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of mm-hmm. personal finance stuff. It's 
or money stuff in the entrepreneurial world, it's always about growth, but it misses safety. Right. And so like yeah. this paradigm of like, when we really, from as I see it and look at your needs, Will, we need to be able to experience and play with each of these different needs as it relates to our financial life. So I'm curious what you would riff off of based on that and money. Yeah. So I had not heard of financial therapy before I met you. And I started thinking about it and thinking, what, how could that be useful? And I just feel like I know I personally have a lot of baggage around money. And it is very deep in there. And I have done some work around excavating that and sort of reintegrating my feelings around money, uh, or rather not reintegrating, but integrating them. But I still have a long way to go. And I have never run, I have never applied my emotion wheels and needs wheels to this, my particular baggage, my baggage around money, mm. because it's so, it's wrapped up with so much stuff. I like money touches everything it, or everything touches yeah. money. <laughs> Both ways. Yes. And so, yes. So it'd feel like I would be pulling a string and the whole thing could just go Unravel. Oh, yeah. Yes. <gasps> well, your intuition is right as far as I can tell in my own experience and when working with clients is you start pulling that string and it you start to like we you can cog we cognitively recognize like oh it does yeah of course it touches everything. But then when you pull your own string and your own life and your own lived experience with money and it's many representations and associations. It's there is a period of undoing almost where it's like, Oh, well, if that's not true, then that's not true. And if that's not true, then that's not true. But if that's not true, then that means this is true. Oh God. So, <laughs> so if you want, I can tell you, because now I'm interested and I, I've been sort of thinking through this, how would I apply these tools to my own issues? And I could tell you kind of what I've been working through and what and what I would do like if, if I were to use it on myself. Yeah, let's go there if you're comfortable. I'm ready. All right. Okay, here we go. We're doing it. So when... When I was nine, <sighs> this is so okay. hard. It is hard. When I was nine, my dad died suddenly. Oh, yeah. And he was extremely successful in the pharmaceutical world. Uh -huh. um, he was the president of a big pharmaceutical training company in New York City. Okay. And um, he did a lot of traveling. He was away a lot. Like you can start to see see a picture, right? Okay. Yeah. So he died suddenly, and he there was a lot of insurance money. But on top of that, he died flying his his. He had a private plane, mm -hmm. which he flew 
when he, that was his passion right. all over the place to go to meetings and stuff. Right. Yeah. And um, it crashed. Mm. And in the 90s, there was this huge scandal because private plane companies were small plane companies were using recycled parts mm. and they were not inspecting them properly. And there was a rash of lawsuits about this. Sure. And my, my mom, uh, after the inspection, they looked at it, they realized it was a parts failure. The engine caught on fire. My mom sued the plane company sure. and got a ton of money. Uh-huh. So I looked into all of this and I found out that part of the reason we got so much money was because the way the legal system values a life has to do with how much money they are projected to make in their lifetime. Mm, yeah. So, um, you know, I'm a social worker. I'm committed to social justice. Right. I believe that everybody has equal worth and value. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. And I have an annuity mm-hmm. that enables me to live without having to get a job, mm. which has enabled me to start this business uh-huh. and let it grow naturally at a pace that I can manage really well and be very intentional and purposeful mm. instead of having to like really hustle or have to have multiple jobs, like work in an organization and do this on the side. It's really made a lot of space for me to be able to do that. So I have a lot of emotions yeah, <laughs> about, you know, about the money. Um, and how we got the money. I have thought about giving it back. I have thought about, um, giving, I don't know who I give it back to (laughs) the, the, you know, the plane company I've thought about, um, I don't know, like all kinds of ways to just get rid of it because at times it's felt like poison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, as far as the emotion wheel goes, I have a lot of shame about that. I feel very embarrassed. I hardly ever talk about it, Um, especially because there's lots of cultural ideas about people who have annuities, kids who have a lot of inherited wealth and how what they do with it and how they live their lives. Absolutely. Um, So I'm embarrassed. Um, And... And I have a lot of fear around discussing it. And um, if I look at the needs wheel, let me pull that out. It really, it really like feels like it steps on my autonomy. Oh, sure. It, yeah, it feels like I can't, it's like I have this money and I'm not self-sufficient, like I'm not, I can't take care of myself, you know, I, so I, there is a lot of individuality stuff that is wrapped up in it, but at the same time, like 
it creates this safety net for me, right? So I don't have to worry about anything. Um, and then it has a lot of relationship stuff. So like, I, you know, I didn't even tell my husband that how much I had until we went to a financial planner a couple of years after we were married. I like forgot to tell him exactly how much I had. I forgot, quote unquote. <laughs> yes. There, and yeah. it didn't come out until we had the meeting with the financial planner. And the financial planner was like, oh, and Colby, since you have this much, um, this will give you a few extra years of retirement. And Bill was like, you what? Because <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was just yeah. so. Yeah, you had tuned it off. I was just so ashamed. Ashamed, yeah. I, I, yes, I, yes, yeah. So <sighs> so the so the idea of you know financial therapy and using these tools to look at my emotions around money and what it's tied to i mean it's tied up with issues of my father dying when i was 9 which on its own is a major tra traumatic incident yes issues with social justice which is some, a very important value to me. Um, like what's the worth of a human life? Um, it's tied up with like um, social relationships and feeling like I, I have a secret that I'm carrying around with me that I can never ever talk about because I'm afraid that people will look at me differently. And But then when I look at my needs and I see, you know, Oh, autonomy. Well, I am a very autonomous and independent person, and I'm very proud of this business that I built. And I really embrace my autonomy and my independence. And so that's not real. Like, that's not the truth. I'm telling myself a story, you know? Yeah. So, so that's, I think, how I could start to unravel that mess. Right. You know, looking at needs and then and then to bring it back around to like, why did I make the needs wheel in the first place? Well, it's because when people were talking about what needs they have, they would say, well, my need, I need her to be on time. I need him to do his work. I need them to do such and such. So they would basically give away their power and put it. Their locus of control is outside of themselves. So they only have one way they could possibly be happy. And that's if this person whom they can't control would do the thing, the specific thing that they want them to do. Right. So, so I made the needs wheel so that I could show them like, these are the range of human needs. All any one of these is fine for you to have uh -huh. and you can own it. And it did the trick. Wow. Just like the emotion wheel. As soon as someone sees the new needs wheel, they and and a lot of times it's about safety. They're like, ah, oh, I need I need space. I need privacy. I need boundaries. And then you have more choices when you own the need. When I own the need of autonomy, um, freedom. Um, I mean, what else? Like feeling loved, belonging, 
when I own those needs, I'm not reliant on one person and or one way to get my need met. I, I love that. I love that. There's, there's flexibility and a range of options for getting your needs met. Yes. And, you know, I, I'm so honored and appreciative of you sharing this part of your life that for the most part you keep hidden away. I know there will be people that are listening that are deeply touched by this um, because there are people that live with these painful losses and money coming in connected with it. And it, it takes on many different meanings, but oftentimes there's pain, uncomfortable emotions associated with it. And uh, it sounds like almost a, an impingement for you on your own sense of autonomy in some ways. I don't know if that's. Yeah. Cause yes, exactly. Cause it almost feels like what, like I have this, like I'm being enabled or something, you know, well, like, do yeah. you see what I'm saying? Like I have, <sighs> I didn't have a choice in the matter. I just, this got dumped on me. What the heck do I do with it? And I could give it away, but why in the world would I do that? And ugh, it's just, just, just you mean yeah, you wiggle your body around in the yuck, right? Because we're in that yes, right now, and we're there's not a you know I think a lot of times we can hear these types of stories, and someone can want to rush in and give the solution and say, "Well, Colby, just do this," or "Don't think that," or "Don't feel that," right? Like those are kind of I feel like very everyday types of responses to this. And I'd be uh, disingenuous to say, I don't have some part of that like inside of me like, oh, I just want to make it okay for her. I just want to caretake her and get it buttoned up and tightened up and cleaned up. And like, we're, but this is, we both know as professional, uh, professional people helpers that this is a process of unfolding and unraveling and coming in right. contact with working with a little bit and then being able to pull back out of it and go back on with life. And that this, you know, this is just, it's another step on the journey of reconciliation around your father's loss, the money that's come into your family, what that's meant for your life, what it's meant for your mom's life. We haven't talked about siblings, but any siblings that are connected to your family, right? And for you, your spouse, even what that meant at the time that you met with the planner, but even what it means now and represents what it means for your son, right? This is that family system pieces there, right. there are layers to work working through this and, and it does have an ongoing effect so it, yeah mm. this is big yeah it is and it's it's good to get it out there because you know there's a saying in 12-step recovery which i'm a part of in a couple of programs you're only as sick as your secrets Right. Yeah. And oh, yeah. so I know if, if I were to look at this objectively, I would say to a friend, if you keep carrying this around with you mm -hmm. and not sharing it and just like compartmentalizing it, you're just making yourself sick. It's just, it's like eating you from the inside out. Mm, I can feel it. Right. Like I can even like, this is that somatic resonance is I feel a little bit of that weight in the chest of that being. Yeah. It's just right. sitting there. <laughs> so let's, you know, I don't know if it, do you feel it in your chest in the, in the center here? Where do you feel it in your body? Yeah. So I see, usually I feel really painful stuff right in my solar plexus. 
That seems to be where it gets stuck. Okay. And sometimes in my like heart area, but a lot of time, well, fear lives in my solar plexus and sadness and loss. I want to say like lives in my heart area, maybe, or like my throat. How do you like to work with your body when you notice those feelings to bring your body back into a a place of comfort and safety? So, um, you know, I've had, I, a couple of people have helped me a lot with this and, um, the most effective thing is to communicate directly with the feeling mm-hmm. and talk to it. It sounds so crazy, but oh, I know. when they, this person first started suggesting it, I was like, what? Right. So I address it directly and I talk to it the way I would talk to a child who is really upset Mm. and give that, give it space to be whatever it needs to be and live wherever it needs to live. Because I read, I was doing a bunch of research and mindfulness a while back for a project and something really caught my eye about mindfulness. This author was saying it's not our emotions that make us uncomfortable. It's our resistance to the emotion. Oh. So if I feel sad and I don't feel safe and I don't talk to it and I am trying to avoid it and I'm pressing it down, that is what creates the discomfort. But and this is, I have experienced this. If I just allow it to be and like sort of swim around in it, then it dissipates and it becomes just a re- energy release and not so much something that's making my body uncomfortable. Well, I realize and want to honor that we're in very vulnerable and sacred space right now as we're talking about this and I'm, I'm just invite you, whether it's now or after we finish up in our recording, that you take, make some time for yourself to meet those emotions that have come up around uh, your father loss and money and, and to really be able to practice that. I will. Thank you for reminding me. I, I After this session, I will probably go do, <laughs> will do some meditation and I'll have a little chat <laughs> with <laughs> with my emotions <laughs> conversation with self and and I love that you named that like what we just talked about sounds crazy you didn't I don't think you said sound crazy but that's kind of where my brain went and I kind of whispered in like one flew to the cuckoo's nest right because I very much have that part yeah. of it. it's like this is woo woo and what the heck yes woo woo yes woo woo <laughs> and, and so like look I'm a former firefighter we don't do emotions you know, I'm remember like, as I say this, I'm remember the guy's truck that says "No fear" in big red aggressive letters. Like, <laughs> so the idea that we're gonna make friends with our fear and our sadness and like almost hold them as if they're a baby to that mm-hmm. the firefighter in me is like that crap is whack and man, those things are crazy. <laughs> 
Right? Yes. Uh, but I am that one, and I have drank the Kool-Aid, and so I do believe in what you're talking about, which is talking to the emotions, meeting the emotions, acknowledging them, seeing them, that they have a right place, that they make sense in the context of what we've happened in our lives. And so I said this, this is really sacred work, and you know, uh, your vulnerability and willingness to go there on the podcast interview is, is really greatly appreciated because I, I know it will touch people. Um, and help them on their own journey of, of the money secrets that they're holding. And they can't even acknowledge to themselves, let alone a close friend or intimate partner. And yet that we know you're only as sick as your secrets. You know, a great wisdom teaching from the community of recovery. So speaking of which, um, um, offline, we talked about uh, coaches versus therapists, authenticity in the helping mm. relationship. And so as mm -hmm. we kind of maybe spend the last three or five minutes together in this interview, can we talk about the nature of the helping relationship and what you're learning and how you're changing in your own understanding of what's happening there in the, the helping relationship? Yeah, sure. So I, I identify as a coach and when I work with people, I am very aware of power differentials that come up between me who is seen as an expert and I have a PhD and I quote unquote know stuff <laughs> and my client who has come to me for expert advice. Uh -huh. However, I have really been working on my, again with recovery, my humility in the past few years. And I think as human beings, we are all like one light in many vessels. And I have my vessel and you have your vessel, Ed, and everybody has their own vessel. The tragedy of human existence is that I can never, I can never get on to someone else's vessel and look around and see how it works. I'm always stuck in my own vessel. So I can, like, if I want to help someone, the only thing I can do is, is float like a bucket of tools over mm -hmm. and say, this is how it's worked for me, but you use them how it works for you because I don't know how the engine in there works. I can't say, like, take the wrench and turn the bolt that's three bolts down from the top bolt because that's probably not what their stuff looks like. You know, it's interesting, I, I, using kind of that anatomy of the mind and soul, right, it, it, with the car analogy, and it's like, we all have an engine, and yet the engine designs can be different, and which bolts yeah. can be adjusted can be different for different people, and well, my, my bolt at the top of the engine is what actually needed some adjusting, it's your bolt at the back of the engine, We're, you know, obviously, I'm not a uh, car guy, supercar guy. So, I, uh, yeah, me neither. But I think people get the drift. Whether you're a mechanic or you're right. not, you get what we're talking about, right? Is we all do have an engine. I think we can all agree to that. But it's you know the the particular makeup and the needs of your engine and my engine may at times be similar and may at times be different. Right. And so when I work with a client. The way I do it is I have all of these tools yeah. and worksheets and the emotion wheels and everything. And I tell them, 
this is this is how I like to use it. This is how it's been helpful for me. You try and see what you think. And I never assume that I, at least I try not to, <laughs> but I, I try to not assume that I know, ever, ever know what's best for this person, ever. I, I believe that everybody is their own best expert, regardless of their age or educational background or experience or whatever, because they know themselves the best. They have the most knowledge. And so I can facilitate an, an awareness. I can create a safe space. I can float over my bucket of tools. <laughs> And if they choose not to use the tools or they choose to use it in a different way, that's awesome because that means they're doing it in the way that they want to and not in the way that I think they should. So with the traditional therapist-client relationship, what I've experienced is I make the therapist into an authority figure. Uh -huh. And I start thinking, what would my therapist say? Or I start worrying what they're thinking about me. I start worrying I'm not doing the quote unquote right thing. What My therapist will probably think this is not good what I'm doing. And then my therapist becomes the authority of Colby, which is totally not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> so I think making myself vulnerable in ways that are not emotional dumping to my clients, honors their autonomy and also helps make me not an authority for them because I want them to own their own power. To me, it just strikes that's right at the heart of the whole recovery healing journey, right? Is reclaiming and developing healthy self-authority. Yes. And it, the, it's very easy as, as therapists or people helpers to put ourselves in our own ego state as I'm the authority. I'm, I know what's best for you. I have all these degrees. I have read all these books. I have, you know, blah, 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 whatever we want, lean on as our crutches. And yet, right. even with great intention, that undermines the client's own authority and um, journey of self-discovery and building their own sense of self. Um, yes. So, yeah, that's, you know, it's so big. And I think that for me, bringing, like, that's one of the big lessons that I want to bring into the practice of financial planning even because that field, I love financial planners. They're, I think they're incredible people, but I think they fall in that trap of I know what's best for people. And my job is to collect all their information and then give them the technical right answer and financial plan for them so they can go on and live their life merrily ever after. But the reality is that undermines the client's own sense of agency and autonomy around what's truly best for me financially. And how do right. I get to making the decisions that are best for me? And like, you know, I don't know where this goes with you and like thinking about the annuity and like, but we talk about like this financial product probably was decided long before you could even make a choice for yourself about what would be best for you. Right. Right. Like, yes, it was set in motion at an age in which you couldn't make a financial decision about how best to receive money based on your father's tragic loss. 
Right. But now, right, as an adult, that reclaiming that agency of how money flows into my life and its purpose and design matters a lot. Yeah, the, the autonomy piece. Wow, there's, I'm going to leave this podcast with a lot to chew on and think about. And I'm <laughs> beyond honored um, by your company, your time, your knowledge, your wisdom, kindness. I mean, there's just so many adjectives I want to heap on you. So let me just say thank you. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for making the the space. Like it just, I need to not carry around that particular secret anymore. And why not make a splash and get it out there? <laughs> just well, be it, done with it. It's splashing around in the Healthy Love and Money podcast sphere. And, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you find listeners, we'll do Kobe a favor and spread it further into your spheres of influence. Uh, that would be wonderful. Um, but yes, it, there is a certain liberation in, in putting our secrets out into the open space. Well, thank you so much, Colby. I hope that you'd consider coming back as a guest in the future as I surely will have more questions for you about human needs and human emotions. Yeah, I would love to. I really enjoyed myself. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.